Hello, all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I'm the founder of Covey Club and also of this podcast. I am so psyched to bring to you a very old friend and peer. Um, I forgot we worked at Vogue together. Gosh, I totally forgot that. Um, Kristen Van Ogtrop, and um, she used to be the editor-in-chief of Real Simple, among other things. And she experienced the same downward spiral that I experienced when I was running more in how to figure out what is she gonna do next? And boy, I'll tell you, getting off these amusement park rides, which were these careers in publishing, which were really freaking fun, as you will hear. They were fun, they were crazy, they were painful, um, but they were they were crazy. I used to say that it was Hollywood for non-actors because you got to do all the same thing that a celebrity would do, but you didn't have to act, which I can't do. Um, but anyway, it's wonderful to hear from her point of view how she saw it. And so interesting to hear that, you know, how she figured out it was time to get off the amusement park ride and what she was going to do next. Um, and you'll see where she's landed and, and what an interesting thing it was. And she has three fabulous tips, which I have not heard before. So stay, stay on to the end um, about what you, sh you know, sort of to do tips. Um, if you're in a similar situation. Um, and I hope you will really enjoy this conversation. And she also has a new book out there, which is called, Did I Say That Out Loud? Midlife Indignities and How to Survive Them. And I knew she'd written the book because I picked up a, a link to it just in my daily surfing around. And I was I was reading it, laughing my butt off, but also having PTSD because I was like, oh my God, that was my life <laughs> too because she was talking very frankly, it was the career chapter. She said, that's not the whole book. Um, and um, it's wonderfully written and funny. Um, and I like the fact that she's so honest um, about herself and she had a different approach than I did. She was, she was much more calm and collected. She looked pretty cool from across town. Um, like nothing was flapping her wings at all. Whereas I felt like I would usually go into work with my hair on fire, though I would try to hide it, but I wasn't that good at hiding it. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Kristen. Have fun and um, stay to the end because you're going to love what you hear. So welcome, Kristen. I'm so glad to talk to you. And I'm so glad to find out what you're doing, that you're a literary agent. I didn't realize oh. that. <laughs> I am. And it's That's, great to talk to you, too. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. It's fantastic. Yes. And, and the way that everybody should know that I got to Kristen, where was that piece published so people can go go get it? So it was excerpted on um, the website Ed2010. Ed2010 for education. Yeah, which I guess is ed2010.com. I, I, you know, I do I know? No, I don't know. <laughs> we'll find it. Um, we'll put I'm it in sorry. the show notes. It's no embarrassing problem. that I don't know. That, you know, do and then somebody worry. posted it on Facebook. And okay. that's where I think a lot of people saw it. Well, it was a, the way I got to Kristen. Kristen was uh, a very famous. Uh, editor-in-chief of Real Simple. Anybody out there who I know, all of you, read Real Simple, loved Real Simple. Um, she did it for 13 years. Did you launch it, Kristen? No, no. no. Okay. First of all, I take issue with the famous, but we can we can get back to that if you want. Um, uh, I No, it was three years old. Uh, it had okay. a launch editor who didn't last very long, a second okay. editor who lasted about a year and a half, and then I came out. 
Okay. Well, lots and lots of people out there loved it, lived their lives by it. And then she became a podcast host for a little while, a Time mm-hmm. Magazine columnist, and now a literary agent at Inkwell Management. And she just wrote a book, which is called Did I Say That Out Loud? Midlife Indignities and How to Survive Them. And I've known Kristen for a long time, but I was reading along in all this junk that I read all the time. And I'm like, oh my God, what is this thing? And there's Kristen, the chapter that they happened to excerpt was, as I said to you, was giving me a little bit of PTSD because it was all (laughs) about our lives, being an editor in chief and what it was like. And um, you seemed to weather it. You didn't, you didn't show your, your hand as much as I did. It was driving me crazy. You always looked, you always look kind of composed Oh God! Yeah, like really? Nothing oh. was oh from afar. From afar. Oh yeah, oh, afar, totally. from like really afar. I yeah. think I from just my didn't point of view. see you often yeah. in those years. Yeah, because <laughs> it was driving me nuts. And like I yeah. would look around and I was like, "Am I the only one being tortured by this?" And it turns out we were all being tortured. We just had it differently, and we um, we had different game faces on. So what I wanted well, to well, and wait, could I ask ahead? you a quick question? Leslie? Yes. What year yes. was it? What year did you leave the magazine industry? 2016. Oh, yeah. Me too. So same. I think we were on very parallel paths, actually. Yes. Yes. And it was just, you know, for me, it got to the point where what was the point of going on in magazines anymore when it had become, instead of a celebration of selling more things and hiring and promoting people and moving them to new things that made them happy, it became a downward spiral into firing people, asking people to do four and five jobs for nothing, um, paying people less. It was just this downward spiral. And I was like, every day I didn't want to come into work because it was so depressing. It was not fun. And um, that was why I I said, you know what, time to time to move on and do something else. And was that what happened to you? Yes, it um, it just became I mean, my job well, you know, you and I met at Vogue magazine when I was an assistant and you were a grown up. I remember oh, that. I forgot but, that. I oh, forgot yeah. That. I worked at right. Vogue with you for like you a minute and a half. For the managing editor? I worked for Priscilla Flood first and then I worked for Lori Jones. Oh, okay. I totally and forgot that. Okay. You were you you were in the office not far from me. Right. And you were you know, I started the magazines late. And so it was very, um, it was kind of, it was hard for me at the beginning because I'd gone to grad school and, um, you know, whatever, ended up working in magazines, almost it felt like by accident. But when I started working there, it was really, really great. I mean, it was hard at first because I was older than all the other assistants. I was married. I had a graduate degree and and but then it then after a while I caught up and with my peers, the people who were my age at least. And um anyway, the my my magazine career was great until I started in magazines in 1996, I guess, five 1995, maybe. And um and it was great until about 2010. And that's when it just started that's when it really felt like I was starting, my job was about managing decline. And, and that was really, really hard, particularly because I was working on a brand that I had spent, you know, the, the good part of the early aughts, like really building and making it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it felt like I was having to disassemble it. 
And that was just really so depressing and boring. It, it got really boring and it was really depressing. So. So interesting. Cause I didn't realize that you felt that same thing. I, oh. I, I didn't yeah. know you guys were more um, cagey about it because we didn't know that the same thing was happening across town. We thought that was just us. So when you first got into it, what did you love about the magazine business um, that turned you on? And you had a degree in, it looks like a, English. Yeah, a master's degree in English. Um, what, what I loved about magazines was it was really sort of just the metabolism of the whole thing. I mean, I, I even though, you know, so let's say my first job was Vogue and I knew nothing about fashion. I knew nothing about, you know, clothes or the industry or the models or the designers. Like I just really, it was, I, in that respect, Vogue was a very strange start for me, but the people who worked at Vogue felt very familiar to me. I mean, not so much the fashion department people. Those were just like, they were like another, like a breed apart kind of, but the people who worked in the features department, which is where working for the managing editor, I was mostly, I interacted the most with the features department people. And they were all just intellectually curious and had a really wide range of interests that were similar to mine and smart and dynamic and, and really energetic. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, these, I love these people. Um, and so that's what it was. And, and I realized that, that you can be kind of a, prof- I've always been easily bored and kind of a dilettante. And, and when you're a mag- when you work for a magazine, well, specific kinds of, I guess, more general interest magazines or magazines with broad audiences, you can be a professional dilettante and it's really fun. So that's what I liked about it just from the very beginning. So um, when you left Vogue, did you go right over to Real Simple? Was that where you went next? No, I, so I went from Vogue uh, the first time to Premier Magazine, and um, which was run by a very different, ed- you know, Vogue, as you know, because you worked for her too, was run by Anna Wintour, who's a legendary, really specific kind of editor. And then I went to work at Premier for Susan Line, who was also a terrific editor, very different kind of person and different kind of editor. And then, but she left Premier to go work for Disney about a year into my time there. And then it just got kind of awful. And so I left Premier. I went to Travel and Leisure to work for Nancy Novograd, who's a lovely person, but I thought I, I just really, it travel magazine editing and writing. It's just not my thing. I found out. Uh, Then I went back to Vogue for the second time. And then I went to Glamour. And then I went to Real Simple. So in the course of, there was one period where in the course of two years, I had four different jobs. And I think my parents were like, what the hell? Like, when do we start worrying? (laughs) But as you know, like, it, you know, when you were certainly back then, when you worked in the magazine industry, if you needed, if you wanted to move up, you kind of had to jump around. And so I did a teeny bit of jumping around. And then, um, but when I went to Real Simple in 2003, that was the one that stuck. And what was so fabulous about Real Simple? Why did you connect? Because it was a very particular kind of magazine. And 
what connected for you and what do you think the appeal was? Because um, those were the days when Martha Stewart was connecting. Um, Oprah had not come on the scene yet. Um, the celebrity mania had not happened when Real Simple started, right? Mm-hmm. It, well, it was like InStyle had launched. And so that was obviously a really celebrity driven magazine. People, I mean, there was, it wasn't the situation for instance, that you see now at Vogue where every month a celebrity is on the cover rather than a model. Um, But maybe it was the dawn of of that when I got to Real Simple. What the reason I loved Real Simple from the beginning was because um, it was the first time I had worked for a magazine where I really was solidly the reader. The demographics of that magazine of our typical reader were, were basically me you know, a busy working parent, usually a mother. I mean, we had men who read the magazine, but it was who read the magazine, but it wasn't very many. Busy working mom, really heavily concentrated in the suburbs. Um, The, the, they tended to be of the, you know, the readership tended to be women in managerial positions, high education level, um, who really just needed who had great full lives and needed ways to make their lives run more smoothly. And, and so whether that was what to make for dinner, you know, how to get dressed in the morning, how to talk to your accountant, um, you know, uh, how to train a dog. We, well, we didn't do a lot of pet stuff, how to, how to pot a house plant, repot a house plant. I mean, just, just sort of the basic stuff that, that, that takes up a lot of our non-working lives. And, you know, I grew up in a household where my mom had been a home ec major. She didn't go back to work until I was in college. Um, You know, growing up, I learned how to arrange flowers and make tuna casserole and hem a skirt and like do all these things that, uh, that my mom taught me. Um, Very practical, uh, how to make your daily life more successful kind of small tips. And then I, I got to this job where I could use that stuff. (laughs) So, um, and the readership was really smart. Like these very smart women who didn't want sex cover lines, who didn't want celebrities on the cover. They just wanted like great recipes for chicken breasts. And I was super happy to give that to them. See, I had always speculated, so interesting, that these were kids of the working mothers, the first round of working mothers, like your mother was home, but for the latchkey kids and everybody else, we were never taught any of that, or we had parents that were in and out, and I always thought Martha was the first step in that direction, but she was too difficult to attain. Right. She was like the, the unapproving mother, where as in many ways, real simple was the accessible mother, but it was all that stuff that you would have learned, but we didn't because our, our mothers were the first group of women into the workforce. Right. And when I left Glamour, in fact, one of my colleagues at Glamour said to another colleague at Glamour, as I was leaving, real simple is a magazine for women whose moms didn't teach them all that stuff. Um, but I guess that made me a good editor for the magazine because my mom did teach me that stuff. And Martha, I mean, Martha, you know, for years, Martha was our main competitor when you looked at our competitive set, but Martha was like about perfection. 
And we, for instance, had a rule that anything we teach you in Real Simple, you don't need to have a glue gun for. Like Martha's a real glue gun magazine and Real Simple was not a glue gun magazine. Don't laugh. We used to say that you were the magazine about clear nail polish. <laughs> that no, was we what probably the, were. <laughs> you didn't need a glue gun, but you needed that. You had more ways yeah. to use clear nail polish than anybody oh, yeah. I'd ever clear thought of. Clear nail polish, dental floss. All that stuff. <laughs> so, talk, so talk about when you decided to leave and how you how you came to terms with that. I mean, it's really hard when you love what you do and you love a business that is going out of business. I mean, how did it how did it first dawn on you that this was not going to go on forever? Because I think many of us, the generation before us, they went on. Ruth Whitney didn't retire until she was 74. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, people rode these things out into their old age, frankly. Um, and I don't know the pain of being forced out and it doesn't have to be just this business, but of seeing a business that was so fun. I mean, I have to say so fun, so glamorous, so crazy um, disappear overnight almost though. It probably was a 10 year period, but it felt like overnight. How did you deal with that? And did you feel that just horrible loss and and mourning for that that fun, crazy, insane life? Well, <clears throat> pardon me. I mean, my life was not glamorous the way yours was as when I was the editor of Real Simple because it wasn't like I was going to fashion shows and like doing fabulous things. My, but my life was really fun. Um, my work life was really fun, and I hired a staff who I loved, but it it had really ceased being fun. And I thought that for the most part, the people, so what one piece of this that I'm leaving out is Time Warner, when I started at Real Simple, Time Warner owned Time Inc. And one by one, the CEO of Time Warner in my time there uh, spun off some of the less profitable divisions. And at a certain point, it became Time Inc.'s turn. So Time Inc. went public, became its own public traded company in 2014, 2014 or 2015. And leading up to that, and then after that, was when it got really awful because, you know, there were all, we'd have these shareholder meetings and there was all this pressure. Like when we were part of Time Warner, if we had a bad year, the whole, the whole mothership could kind of absorb our hurt. But when Time Inc. was its own publicly traded company, there was just, the pressure was greater. The management consultants sharpened their knives and um, people like me, who were the creative, so-called creative people in the company just felt like every day you died a little bit inside. and so. So when I left, by the time I left, Leslie, I was so unhappy. I mean, it's sort of what you described. It was a long thing, even though it felt like it happened all at once. Um, it was a long process of me getting increasingly unhappy. And I write about this moment in the book where I met my gynecologist's office and I had just felt so heavy. Like everything about me felt heavy. My brain felt heavy. I just, my enthusiasm for my daily life seemed to have really 
diminished. And I said to my guy, I was just have, uh, having an annual exam at my gynecologist's office. And I said, I think I'm either depressed or I'm going through perimenopause or I need a new job. And she said to me, or maybe it's all three. <laughs> I was like, great. <laughs> maybe it was all three, but, but it, I just felt shitty. And I, I had little respect for the people who were running the company and they had little respect for real simple. They really loved, they had stars in their eyes when they would talk about Sports Illustrated and Fortune and Time Magazine, you know, the more sort of the legacy, more male oriented books. And you would talk about real simple. And I was known in the company as the blueberry muffin lady because the CEO at the time complained whenever he saw me about how much money we spent developing blueberry muffin recipes. And after a while, I was just like, screw you, everybody. And so um, I, it was kind of a gnawing feeling that kept growing. And I had to keep firing people. And eventually I thought, okay, what if I maybe just fire myself instead? And that's what I did. I went to my boss and I said, you, I've spent 13 years building this brand and you're asking me now to take it apart. And I'm not the right person for that job. Um, and he said, I will call HR. And then, and that was kind of it. And so when I left to sort of fully answer your question, I felt amazing. I was like euphoric um, because I was really happy not to be going to that job anymore. I was very sad. I cried and cried and cried the day I left. And then I shut that door behind me and I was super happy for probably a year. And then what did you do? Did you start your podcast then or what was your next step? No, the podcast I was doing when I was still at Real Simple. Um, so I quit my job. You know, I had, a, I still had, some, I had still had a number of months left on my contract. So I will say that I had the gigantic, good fortune of leaving with a financial safety net of a contract. And so that's why I felt euphoric. I couldn't, I knew that I didn't have to worry for a little while um, about, you know, how we were going to put food on the table. And so, and I also have, you know, I have a working spouse. And so I had a very privileged amount of freedom um, at the beginning. And and all I wanted to do when I left was take a pottery class. I took a pottery class. I'm not good at pottery at all. Kind of suck at pottery. I, my youngest son was in fourth grade and I had never been a stay-at-home mom. I mean, I do think that when you work as you and I both did in one career for a very long time and you get to a really senior level, you do, there is this hubris that you develop maybe without even knowing it, where you think, oh, I could do that other job. Like I'm really good at this. And so I could go do that totally different thing and be really good at it too. <laughs> and so I, you know, I tried some other things. I, I did some nonprofit volunteer. I, so I, so first thing I did was pottery. Turns out I'm with good at being the editor of Real Simple. I am not good at pottery. And then I did, I did some nonprofit work, not a good fit. Like I didn't like it. Um, I tried being a stay-at-home mom to my son, Axel. And like, I wasn't like a monster stay-at-home mom, but I, I, I knew that wasn't my forever path. And so I tried, you know, I was like Goldilocks. Like I tried a few different things to see what, what would fit. And, and 
then eventually realized I had this kind of moment of clarity that I also write about a little bit in the book where I realized, okay, you know what, Kristen, you are a person who needs to work with other people and go into an office like that. That is what fulfills you. And, and so, but that took me, you know, I was, you, I was really, really happy just being free and not feeling the pressure of, you know, being beholden to a Metro North schedule, something sort of as minor as that, or firing a bunch of people to make a budget number, something as big as that. Like I was, I felt so free at the beginning. And then I felt like, oh my God, who am I? And that process took about a year and a half to get from point A to point B. Yeah, there's there's something to be said about feeling free of all that. And there's that horrible um, art. The way I knew that I didn't want to continue was we had a business um, manager who was a single mom. And there was rumor that we might get a raise um, one year. This was right the year, I think it was 16 or 15. And she actually went to the managing editor, if you can believe this, and said, please, if because she was fabulous, don't give me a raise because I don't want my job then to be cut. And that's yeah. when I was like, okay, there's a cancer on this business. And when people are going in and actively asking you not to give them a raise, Mm -hmm. you you have your business is screwed you're dead there's something wrong so it was so painful but sad but you that's great so how did you how did you end up then moving into literary agency and talk a little bit about your book so um one of the partners at inkwell management which is the literary agency i now work for is my agent his name is richard pine and he was the agent for my first book. He's the agent for this book that's just come out. And when I left Real Simple, he sent me an email and he said, you either need to write another book or you need to come work at Inkwell as an agent. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I just, you know, I didn't want to do anything. And I, and I had sort of forgot about his email. And then um, once I was about, my son Axel, who had been in fourth grade when I left magazines, was going into sixth grade. I had come to the realization that I was not a stay-at-home mom. I was not a nonprofit person. Um, I certainly wasn't a ceramicist. And so I needed, and I, and I really missed being part of kind of a larger enterprise and going to an office and, and working towards something um, in a purposeful way. And so um, I just, I, then I met with Richard and I met with the two other, uh, his two partners at Inkwell, Michael Carlisle and Kim Witherspoon. And they were willing to take a chance on me. And, um, and so it was very, it was a really humbling experience. I mean, in a way I've come full circle because when I was in grad school, I had an internship at Farrar, Strauss and Giroux, this, what was then a small independent publisher. And so I always, the so book publishing is something that I loved from a young age. I just, um, you know, I was then in my what, like mid twenties or something. Um, but it took me 25 years to get back to it and in a different, really different sort of role. But so now I've been there for two and a half years. I would say I'm still learning. But one thing I would say to the listeners of your podcast is one benefit of reinventing yourself when you're in middle age, as opposed to a young person trying a whole different kind of industry is 
at least for me, I'm not embarrassed to be like the dumbest person in the room. Um, I think because I know I have accomplished something else in my last life. And I also am now in my mid fifties and I don't really give a shit if I look idiotic. Um, I'm not afraid to ask really stupid questions that I, when I don't understand something about this new industry I'm in, which I think the 25 year old Kristen would not have done because she would have been too embarrassed that she was going to look stupid. And so that's a real benefit of starting over when you're older. Um, is you are you're you're self-actualized and you feel comfortable enough in your own skin that you can look idiotic and it won't hurt you. <laughs> what else would you say as we come to the close in our discussion here that people I love the fact that you come back full circle. I think a lot of people go back full circle if they really dig into their history that they, and it's something that people should do when they're cut loose from something that they loved and they're not sure where they should go. They should probably look back to those things that they got rid of or, you know, had in their background and loved, but moved on from. But mm -hmm. what other, what other sort of tips and tricks um, of, you know, and, and we talked to the same woman who's very accomplished. She was, I mean, she is managerial. She's C-suite. What would you say to her about finding yourself again, because you sound so, you really went through hell and now you're you're back in the saddle again. And uh, I do agree that being older and not being afraid mm -hmm. um, to look like a jerk or to say, I don't know, mm -hmm. that you have that confidence that you would not have it at, when you're 20. But what, what other sort of tactical effects would you- So I would say, I would say three things. Um, that, that I think worked for me and I think can work for others if it's applicable and they're chronological. I would say for the first, if you're thinking of making a change, and this is a very practical tip, is you really need to test the strength of your safety net. So for me, although the people who worked around me probably thought that my quitting was really impulsive, you know, I had talked to my financial advisor, I had looked cl closely at my contract, I had talked to my lawyer, my husband and I had gone through all the eventualities of like, okay, worst case scenario, we like change our lifestyle a lot. We sell our house, we downsize. Like I, I, so we, it was a, it was a more tactical than impulsive decision than it probably looked like from the outside. So I knew that even the worst case scenario I could live with, and it was better than being miserable in my career as I was at the time. So I would say, number one, test the strength of your safety net. I would say, number two, if you can at all, and this is not something everyone's able to do, is build in a pause. Like that pause for me between one job and another was really helpful because I was I felt so happy, as I've said now like 10 times, in, in leaving that I think that I would have felt optimistic about any new kind of a job. And it took me starting to feel bored and uncertain to, I think, have this discernment of picking the right job the second time. So um, if you can build in a pause to feel all the feelings and start to start feel restless and be smart about what you do next, I found that extremely helpful, the pause. And then three, just going back to what I was saying before, just 
embrace the humility of starting something new and not being good at it. I mean, it's, it's good for you. It's, it's particularly if you've had a, had great career success in one realm, I think it's good for you as a human being to go to a new thing where you're not that good at it and you have to build back up again. Um, I think it's, I just think it's a, I think humility is, is a powerful motivator. So I would say those three things. Are you a big learner? Is that kind of how you, because that's, I think what allows people to do that is to say, okay, I've already learned this one thing. Now I'm going to start back at the bottom. What, what motivates you? What's your biggest motivator? Oh gosh. You know, my biggest motivator is fun. Oh really? Okay, (laughs) cool. It's not, I took this nonprofit class, Leslie, in between between jobs also. I took a nonprofit leadership class, which was basically, I know we're running out of time, but was basically like a how to be a better human being class. And at the beginning, you had to identify your like top five core values. Mm -hmm. I had this long list. And for me, fun was in the top five. And I think I was the only, the people in my class were all wonderful, but more serious than I am. And I think I was the only person who chose fun. Wow. But fun for me is really what drives me. <laughs> Great. That's awesome. So we're almost at end. I just want to hear what was the purpose of the book? Did I see that say that out loud? Life and Dignities and How to Survive Them, which is out now. What was um, the, the purpose of that? Because we are all talking about menopause here. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's certainly, a, it's a, certainly a good book for women who are going through menopause. It's, you know, it, it's for women who are in their 40s who haven't hit menopause yet, women who are through menopause. It's it's really just about this middle part of life and all of the triumphs and 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 humiliations that it brings, whether it's, you know, aging parents and adultish children and careers that may change and your relationships with your friends. Um, it, it's just it's stuff that, that you and I, and many women who are roughly our age experience on a daily life, but on a daily basis, but with this abiding sense of optimism, it's, you know, when people talk about my book, the feedback I'm getting is they think it's really funny. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of sad parts. I would say it's much more funny than sad. Mm -hmm. And, but hopefully what readers really can take away from it is just a feeling of sort of gratitude and optimism for, just still being around. Yeah, I think that's how I look at it. Frankly, so many people in our business who we knew well did not make it and uh, are gone. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, for me, I'm like, this is all gravy. Whatever I'm doing afterwards is gravy. So yes, I'm grateful to be here. And then whatever you can do from there on in is great. So thank you so much, Kristen. I so appreciate your talking. I hope everybody will check out the book. You will laugh. Um, well, I'll find the link, um, for that one chapter and I'll put it in the show notes as well. So well, thank you for having me. It's been Great. delightful to talk to you. Awesome. Love it. So I hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Kristen Van Ogtrop and I just love her tips Um, I think they're unique and they're different. And I love that idea of a pause because I do believe it's true. It's kind of like dating 
when you break up with somebody you were crazy for, you're going to rebound badly. And you definitely, I've seen that with friends who quickly jump to the next thing because they have to, but some people have to because they need money. You just got to grab whatever, whatever there is and you do si um, and hope it works out. But if you can build in that pause, that's totally genius because it will give you a chance to collect yourself and really discover what it is you want. And I hope you enjoyed that. If you do, I hope you will subscribe. Also pass us along to other friends you know who are trying to reinvent or need to reinvent. They need to listen before they are being ushered out the door. I get a lot of calls in November um, from hysterical people saying, oh my God, I'm going downstairs and they're gonna give me a pink slip. Please don't wait till then. If you're thinking at all that this could happen to you or possibly happen to your sector or the kind of business you work in, you need to start planning a couple of years ahead and have a thought in your mind of what you're gonna do next. To help you with that, uh, go over to the Covey Club site, pull down the connect part of the navigation bar and click on the link that says 31 badass tips for launching your reinvention without fear. That's my little gift to you. I compiled kind of the most important tips I've learned um, over my more years and here. Um, to get you going so that um, you're, you're not feeling despair because it can be despairing until you put that first foot in the water and you will feel better. As soon as you start reading about it, as soon as you start hearing other people who've done it, you will calm down and then you will be able to find your way. So I hope you enjoy that and I hope you'll come back and visit us on Cubby Club. And take care until next time.